0: Welcome to the Macro Trading Floor. Yes, it's the 1st of January. We are online. We're completely nuts. This is Alf, CEO and founder of the Macro Compass.
1: And this is Andreas Steno, the CEO and founder of Steno Research. Happy New Year, everyone. It's, um, it's good to be back online and um, it will be an extremely exciting year in global macro. But before we get to the year ahead, Let's look a bit at what happened in 2022.
0: Andreas, before we talk about what happened in 2022, we should talk about what happened to you. I mean, I'm here with Andreas Steno's son, not with Andreas Steno. (laughs) For the people listening to the podcast, my Danish buddy here has shaved himself, which means he looks 10 years younger, but I can't recognize him. He's even uglier than normal, but okay, that's...
1: I, I've only shaved my facial hair. Let me just. <laughs> yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> I, I spent, was it five or six days with my mommy over uh, Christmas? And she kept moaning about that um, beard. So I had to shave. Or, side,
0: or this is the way for you to honor your only funds bet. <laughs> you are this close, man. Like this close on that euro against a dollar.
1: This yes. close. I promised to open an only uh, fans account if Eurodollar dollar breached 0.95 on the downside and <laughs> thankfully <laughs> I bottomed at 0.9510 I think but uh, anyway um elf let's have a look at 2022 uh, it was a year full of surprises to say it the least but what surprised you the most last year
0: Hmm. I should say, Andreas, the fact that even the smartest investors um, I know or some of my very smart clients on the hedge fund world um, didn't adopt the playbook and kept trading for at least six months using uh, the same playbook over the last 10 years, which is this inflation Fed put, um, you know, the Fed's going to have my back. They are not serious about inflation. Powell was very vocal already in December 2021 for the first time. And then surely he was in the first half of 2022 again. But people had a very hard time adapting to that. And that reminded me of the recency bias that we're always subject to as investors. We tend to want to extrapolate our last observation, our last period we've been trading in forever. 2022 was a very very strong lesson that that doesn't always work that's what surprised me the most
1: i have to admit that um i'm guilty of the same to a certain extent um i think it took me at least until mid-april maybe even early may to sort of recalibrate my investment models to the new world if you allow me to say that um I kept saying throughout the first months of 2022 i'm too young to expect rate hikes of 50 or 75 basis points per meeting uh, because i've i've basically never lived through a period of such hikes so uh, it was a a, an eye-opener in many ways 2022 but i have to uh, throw in the towel and say that uh, the thing that surprised me the most was first of all that putin invaded ukraine uh, I think 24 hours before he invaded Ukraine, I wrote a piece called The Biggest Bluff of a Century. What, great <laughs> um, call. Yeah, great call, right? Uh, I, I've been ridiculed like crazy uh, for that headline, and all fair. Uh, it was an extremely wrong take. But the second thing I had wrong was the sort of immediate reaction to the war. Uh, at the time, I um, ran an allocation unit uh, at a big... Private equity firm in Europe. And I remember saying to management that this is a classic risk off event. War means buy bonds, it means uh, stick to defensive positions, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, but oh boy, that was wrong as well. Uh, I thankfully recalibrated that view in sort of due time, but I was um, immediately very wrong also on the market takeaways of that invasion.
0: Andreas. If somebody in 2022 tries to say he was not wrong at least five times, he's a liar. I mean, it was a very, very difficult year for most uh, people. Think on the macro trading floor, we did pretty okay, um, anticipating a lot of pretty decent uh, macro calls. If I have to reflect on the best trade of the year, so we talked about surprises, right? Let's talk about what was the best risk-reward, well-articulated trade of the year that a guest on the macro trading floor actually presented what's your
1: top voter well we had lynn alden uh coming on the show already during the early parts of the spring uh, being very vocal on the energy trade uh in in stock space uh hats off or ha- a hat tip for that um, it was an extremely well-placed trade also timing wise um so i i have to mention that then Allow me to brag a little bit about one of my own traits as well. Uh, I had a lot of stuff wrong in in 22, but I had one thing very right. And that was the European energy situation come August, September. Um, I looked very thoroughly through the data on storage capacity, uh, net inflows, um, and I quickly found out that the storage situation in Europe was actually much better than reported. Um, and especially given the pricing of natural gas in Europe, it was to me, a tremendous risk reward, shorting the natural gas complex in particular in Europe, uh, but also the broader commodity basket from late August and into September. And I did that via the SA-LL ETF and made a ton of money. Um, so that was basically the best setup that I found. In 2022? I don't know whether you have any particular consideration. From,
0: that. Uh, from the guests and the rest of the macro trading floor, looking as well at the risk reward and how the trade performed over three to six months, I think our first guest was pretty good. The legendary Jim Leitner came on the show and he talked about being long the Brazilian real um, against the dollar, which, you know, we understood why, but we also thought it was kind of already priced in. Actually, The carry kept working uh, the Brazilian real way. Terms of trade remained positive for most of the time. Political uncertainty was almost a nothing burger at the end of the day. I mean, there were some political uncertainties, but it was somehow discounted. Carry was significant. Um, I think there was a pretty decent risk-reward trade, well-elaborated, well-thought-of, and it actually worked very well. The other one, which was ridiculously good with hindsight, is... Uh, Nick Givanovich and shorting the shots, oh God. I mean, I don't know if Nick predicted Lagarde to uh, all of a sudden become this hawkish, probably not, but ultimately the rationale behind uh, the fact that European inflation basically lags, US inflation was correct. And if you see where the shots is today and when Nick shorted it, I think that's a pretty decent risk reward to
1: Yes. And let's get back to the discussion on short-term Euro interest rates when we look into the trades for 2023, because I have a few things to add to that particular trade uh, when it comes to the outlook for the next six to nine months. But let's look at the worst trade of 2022 before we move on to to this year. Um, I I mean, (laughs) the safest thing to say is that everyone – with a lot of Tesla in the portfolio have, have had a bad year. Um, uh, to, just to give you one example, uh, and I know it's it's one example out of many Finfluencers. Uh, the the best the best Finfluencer in Denmark had, I think, just south of 70% of his portfolio allocated to Tesla oh. by January 2022. Um, he now has a bit less than allocated to Tesla and he's not sold anything. (laughs) um, Well,
0: well, the the market is doing the selling for him, Andreas. Yes. Um, When I think of the worst trades last year, well, I think I have again to go back to people being um, very, very convinced that central banks are not going to fight inflation. So it's a lack of understanding of incentive schemes. So... I myself have fallen at some point for buying third year treasuries at three thirty five percent not a not a good idea um I thought at some point that you know basically the curve would invert even further than it did or that the Federal Reserve would stop uh at some point and basically make uh financial conditions tightening reflect with a lag into the economy, but their incentive scheme is is just not that one, and it was clear i think throughout the year although at some point it seemed to stop through the summer, but it actually didn't. So buying bonds, obviously, from a risk-adjusted perspective, has been one of the worst trades. I mean, a 10-year future on a total return basis in the US have had probably their worst year, or anyway, like 3% percentile worst year in 50, 70 years or something like that. So it's been a very, very brutal year on a risk-adjusted basis for bonds. which makes me think, Andreas, we should uh, stop chatting about 2022. That's too easy because the year is past already. So it's all about reflections. Now we should, I think, chat about the themes that will drive macro in 2023. So uh, let me ask you what do you think the three themes that people should focus on should actually be? And if you have any trade idea out of that.
1: First of all, I think an overall driver of asset allocation in 2023 will be the mere fact that the European business cycle, also in inflation terms, lacks the business cycle of the US by, say, in between five and seven months. So the first half of 2023 will look ugly in inflation terms in Europe at least in co-inflation terms. Energy is obviously a dark horse always. But um, that is something to consider. Uh, it is also something to consider when it comes to your allocation and in fixed income for the next six to nine months. Uh, I think that's a, a major theme. Um, second theme I want to point out is that the Chinese reopen is actually happening. Uh, I was very vocal through November and December that I found the Virus spreading to be the actual trigger for a reopening, uh, because as long as the zero COVID policy was an actual success, they would never really allow the reopening to happen. But now that they cannot claim victory anymore, um, it may actually be that the reopening will will go ahead with full steam, and I I, I certainly lean that way. Uh, and I'm not necessarily in the camp that this means that we will have inflation running wild again throughout the uh, global landscape. Uh, But I am of the opinion that it matters for a couple of important tactical traits that we can get back to. Uh, And it may also matter for the overall global macro outlook for the second half of next year. Uh, It may turn out better than than anticipated basically as a consequence uh, of this. And then the third thing I would like to highlight is that when it comes to Asset allocation. I find positioning to be extreme, heading into 2022 in many ways. Uh, just to mention um, an extreme outlier, we have euro dollar. In positioning terms, at plus 40 percent of net open interest, so it basically means that the market is net long the euro versus the dollar. At the same time as the market is net short 77% in NASDAQ. That is to me an outlier uh, because it's very rare that you have an extreme bearishness in equities at the same time as you have optimism around the euro versus the dollar. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, this is sort of a gap in positioning terms that I would like to exploit throughout the first half of the year. But I would like to get your take on the themes for next year before we get to the trading part. So I
0: think the first overarching theme, Andreas, I want to convey is the following. 2023, especially the first half, is going to be push and pull between big picture and events happening. Let me explain what I mean. The big picture is that the global economy will keep slowing down pretty aggressively. That's the big picture. And if it doesn't, central bankers are going to make it slow down. So that big picture overarching theme, in my opinion, hasn't changed. This is the the push. There will be a lot of pull forces in the meantime. One of it clearly is the Chinese reopening. Uh, you're going to have, you know, basically China ha- being one of the engines of nominal growth in the world, reopening at full steam. It's gon- not going to be a straight line. It's It's not. But the social intent in China is to reopen the economy, which means nominal spending is going to go up, which also probably means that you're going to have some supply chain bottlenecks again. I mean, if you reopen the entire economy and 250 million Chinese catch COVID, you can expect that some of them will not show up to work, that the Chinese ports will not be super functional, that the, you know, the factories will not be super functional. So you're going to have some supply bottlenecks the same way we had them in the US or in Europe when we decided to reopen full steam we already have a playbook for that it's going to be repeated so that's the pool which means as the global economy slows down that's the big picture you're going to have a pool which is the Chinese reopening it's inflationary it's nominal spending booster etc etc so you're basically going to have Rallying cyclicals, probably rallying commodities, a rate selling off, which is counterintuitive to the big picture scenario we discussed before. And one thing I guess for macro investors is how do you navigate the time horizon and the risk management around this push and pull? That's the first theme. The second one is you're going to have central bankers divided into three categories, which also is interesting for us the allocation. Europe, you already touched on it, and Japan. Those will be Reaction, not, not reactionary, late to the party central bankers. So their economies are clearly slowing, but core inflation lags in these places and they're going to just be very mechanical and keep conditions very tight very, very late in the cycle. That's Japan and Europe, which generally has quite a negative impact on, um, domestic risk premia, credit spreads, equities, but on currencies it can be very interesting because the euro can appreciate in the first stage but what happens when credit spreads in Italy start to become a problem then you have euro depreciating so again push and pull in Japan the story is more clear to me because in a global slowdown the Japanese yen generally performs and now Japan is making sure that domestic players are rewarded more for holding cash within Japan so again you have these central bankers and then you have another category of central banks Andreas which is the Fed the Bank of England, uh, Bank of Canada. You know, these guys are like, okay, we did quite some tightening, right? And we probably have to do a bit more, but we, you know, we understand that the cycle is slowing down. And then you have a third category of central bankers, which most people are forgetting, which are emerging market central bankers. Brazil, Mexico. I mean, these guys have already done most of the tough work in 2021 already. So now they're looking at real rates, which are already very high. They're looking at a global inflation pictures slowing down a bit. You're looking at terms of trade, which is not terrible, which makes me think, you know, maybe these local currency bonds are not looking that bad. So you have three different central bankers. And the third consideration I will make is you have listed asset classes and non-listed asset classes. So the pain you have seen in uh, whatever high beta tech stocks. It's massive, right? But those are listed. This is where people can take their steam off, literally, Mm. in shorting and and selling that stuff from the portfolio. What about private equity, private credit, real estate, to be closer to to any guy listening to us? It's unthinkable that these asset classes will not be subject to large losses. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is real estate is the biggest asset class in the world. So I cannot discard um, these from my global macro considerations next year.
1: I would be surprised to see a drawdown that is smaller than 20% in real estate in most Western economies. I think that's kind of the base case, 20%. Uh, But we can get back to why. Let's have a look at how to trade this, because that's obviously always the trickiest part. It's easy to come up with narratives. It's easy to come up with scenarios. But what about what's priced in? and what will happen in 23. So let's look at the first theme I mentioned, the European inflation slash business cycle lacking the business mm-hmm. cycle of the US. So what I did this week was that I looked at European short-end, short-end interest rates as a lacked function of US core inflation and mm-hmm. the US curvature of the yield curve um, and what I got was a model predicting the two-year German shots at 5.25% in roughly 180 trading days from today. Um, Let's see whether... Uh, the ECB is willing to go that far because that obviously means that the ECB will need to convince the market that they are uh, that they mean business. Uh, but I'm certainly leaning that way, and it's the first time I really truly lean that way from a risk reward perspective. I wasn't in that camp this summer, um, to be to be perfectly honest. Um, and the second thing is that it's interesting to see how sensitive the euro swap curve is to core inflation in Europe relative to uh, what happened to the swap curve in dollar terms when core inflation rallied in the US. So if I'm right that European core inflation will continue upwards, then I think you should expect the sensitivity in curvature terms to be even larger in Europe, which means that the inversion that we see right now in the US, which is pretty extreme from historical standards, could be overdone. the european curve during the first half of next year if my sensitivity studies are right so gear up for minus 250 basis points and spread between 10s and 2s. Something like that. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys,
0: basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating
1: multiple credit cards into one single place. you are eligible to receive twenty dollars in curve cash to your curve account within 14 days of you downloading the curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast
0: and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your twenty dollars in cash back the referral link is in the description below the video. So let me make an assessment for a second on um, on the euro. Um, I think we both covered this, but Lagarde effectively said to everybody, ladies and gentlemen, terminal rate needs to be at least 4% in the OIS curve in Europe. Minimum. Okay. Now, um, let me check my volatility adjusted market dashboard, but I don't think we are there yet. So I'm looking at terminal rates in Europe at 342%. So there has been a massive repricing, but still we're at least 60 to 80 basis point off. Translating that into two-year yields, we're talking probably about 100 basis point-ish from where we are today, roughly, something like that. That's quite a move, right? It wouldn't be shots at 5%, but at 3.5%, it's totally understandable. And shots trade through DCB deposit rates for obvious reasons, collateral scarcity, etc. But to give you an idea, 100 basis point move in two-year rates, it's gigantic in in standard deviation terms in Europe. Okay. Now, what I do agree on is that this would flatten the euro yield curve very aggressively. I do agree on that. One small consideration is if w- when the front end sells off, you can flatten the curve as much as you want, but a hundred basis point is going to get reflected into the same sign of sell off also in the long end. What I'm saying is long end rates will go up as well. Now, We have seen a bit of chaos in the UK when long and real rates uh, and nominal rates went up, right? And I'm not saying the European pension fund industry is the same as the UK. It is not. There are regulatory differences, etc. But I'm bearing that in mind, Andreas. When it comes to flattening, the only thing that I'm really aware of is, is this rapid rise in basis point terms in 30-year rates going to cause some issues to European pension funds as well? So that's the only uh, reason why I'm a little bit hesitant there. And I want people to remember this pension fund story can happen in Europe as well. The other consideration is euro against the dollar and BTPs. I mean, if you push two year rates in Germany, a hundred basis point higher, you're talking about basically two year Italian rates at five, five and a half percent. Is somebody gonna ask questions about that sustainability? Probably yes. And what are the answers the ECB is gonna give to them? I mean, they've been so strong in their communication about tightening. I don't think they can easily walk back and say, hey, Italy's under trouble at the very first sign. We're going to reverse this, which also makes me think what happens to the euro against the dollar? Because one force is going to be pushing the euro higher, potentially as interest rate differentials shrink. The other should pull it lower because the risk of fragmentation increases. So again, push and pull. That's my main overarching theme for 2023.
1: Uh, I think it makes sense what you say. And if you look at short-term correlations between the Italy to German spread versus Eurodollar, then the spread widening that we've seen lately between Italian and German bonds already point to Eurodollar fair values around one again. Um, So it's a pretty interesting divergence that we've seen lately. And that brings me to Um, a discussion on what I call the positioning extremes for 2023. I mentioned positioning in the foreign exchange market being net long 40% of open interest in Euro versus U.S. dollar, while we have an extreme net short in U.S. equities of minus 77% in the Nasdaq e-minis. So to me, the interesting takeaway from that is the following. If you're sitting on European soil, as I am, or as you Elf, it may actually make sense to add some equity risk in US dollars on a naked Mm -hmm. FX basis. Since you have an extreme positioning looking for a weakening of the US dollar at the same time as you have an extreme positioning looking for a weakening of US equities. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if the equity market sells off, it's quite likely that you will get some sugar coating from your dollar position. And if the equity market starts partying and the dollar um, sells off a little bit, then you're probably good off as well. So I'm starting to think that it actually makes a lot of sense to be outright long dollar equities seen from European soil when you consider the FX effects as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, When designing portfolios for, uh, for clients at the macro compass, looking from a European perspective, it's actually one consideration. Um, the effects and the equity exposure might offset each other and you might want to capture some risk premium in the meantime. Something to consider for next year. Uh, The euro has definitely reflected interest rate differentials moving in favor of Europe rather than the US. I'm not sure it has reflected anything else over the last (laughs) month or so, Andreas, but it Honestly, it was also coming from an extremely under-owned uh, position where nobody wanted it. And remember blackouts and Europe is going to default and blah, blah, blah. You remember the story of uh, September, October this year. Um, the um, From an asset allocation perspective, um, one thing that I find interesting here is how do you approach bonds? Because ultimately, if we discuss that central bankers are going to effectively be uh, either in the very, if they are in the very um, late to the party camp, then it's very complicated being long bonds. I mean, they are telling you not to be, literally. It's Lagarde being Powell six months ago, effectively. Yes. So it's very hard to be long bonds in these jurisdictions. Okay. Now you move to the other jurisdictions and you're going to the US or to the UK or to Canada, for example. And there it's, it is going to be more of a function of data than anything else. They are still going to be lagging, um, forward leading indicators and coincident data, but ultimately the economy is bound to slow down very aggressively, if you ask me. So if I say this to you, then maybe the first reaction could be, I'll oh, just, just buy some two to five year bonds and, you know, just get the carry on the book and then wait for the moment when you are going to be right. The problem with for the, with this is you have to be right more than the forwards are. And you know, the carry can work your way, but if you get another strong labor market report in January, for example, you're gonna have terminal rates repriced higher and and you know the carry will be wiped out very quickly by the, the, the negative mark to market. So it's not that easy, clear cut yet, in my opinion, to to be hugely allocated to Uh, two-year or five-year U.S. bonds, but it starts to look better in certain jurisdictions, I would say. My favorite place where to buy front-end bonds not hedged on a currency basis is actually some emerging markets, as we discussed before. (laughs) Yeah, you like Mexico,
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have some friends in Mexico, so we need to support them (laughs) on the show here. But uh, I'm just kidding. Um, I actually think you're right that uh, from a risk reward perspective, I would look outside of European shores um, in a bond perspective to find the best risk reward. Um, I certainly don't find a good risk reward in being long Euro sovereigns, for example, into the first quarter of this year.
0: Shall we talk equities, you know? We want to talk effects and bonds and stuff. What about the, the, the elephant in the room?
1: <laughs> so I've actually prepared some data for once. Um, so it was just rambling. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's always interesting to look at, um, the valuation of equities in, in light of what's going on in the macro space. Uh, and what I find really interesting is that I can only find one sector that looks outright cheap on forward PEs relative to history, and that's energy. Uh, So energy is still in single digit territory on forward PEs uh, with a pretty decent earnings outlook, I have to say relative to other sectors into next year. Uh, And if you look at all other sectors, they are still in the close to 20 territory in forward PE terms. which is not cheap in a historical context, in particular not if the E disappoints. Uh, so I, I, I still struggle to find so-called cheap bets. Um, I, I'm not particularly upbeat on energy from a tactical perspective due to all of the risks looming surrounding the demand side of the equation, but I still think it makes a ton of sense to add that position to your portfolio and leave it there, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um...
0: The the remark I have there is that valuations are basically the multiple that investors are willing or are paying for a certain set of future cash flows. And I think for energy, that's a bit of a complicated story because policymakers have basically been telling you for three or four years, Andreas, if you're an asset manager or a pension fund, I don't care if you're willing to buy that stuff. You basically can't because Mm -hmm. I'm going to make some ESG story. I'm going to make some other... Uh, regulatory constraints that basically don't allow you to pile or invest into any energy-related thing, which basically mechanically makes the PE cheap in the first place, right? Because you're cutting away a lot of capital that could reach the sector, and it's regulatory bound
1: not to actually invest in that sector. Yeah. But if you look at valuations from a geographical perspective, instead of from a sector perspective. Um, I would like to highlight South America again. Um, Clearly some of the lowest valuations in PE terms, also relative to its own history. Um, And then overall, it's getting close to being fair to say that Europe is priced as an emerging market in (laughs) equity terms. Um, You have the sort of overall uh, trailing PE at roughly 13. Yeah. On European indices. Um, that's not too expensive in a historical context. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Well, the, the problem with these equity valuations is that they're, they're gonna, they're gonna compete next year with risk-free rates, yes. even in Europe uh, at 3%, to say the least in the U S at four, four and a half percent. So it's, it gets a bit complicated. I wanna, tr- I wanna actually, uh, translate that story into looking at Utilities or pharma or staples. So let's say uh, non-banks, non-energy, high-dividend-yielding stocks, right? Because if you're if you're going into a slowing economy and you want some equity exposure, Andreas, maybe you want low-beta stuff. Maybe you want stuff that doesn't really um, swing too much when it comes to earnings or vol, right? You want you want decent stuff that delivers some some cash flows and some dividend yields. You look at these sectors; those are historically the ones to focus on uh, in these macro periods. You're looking at dividend yields in the 3% area in the U.S. I'm sorry, but I can buy two-year treasuries at 4.5%. Um, so it, it, again, resonates with your assessment on on valuations. Even when you look at more defensive sectors, it ain't cheap, which also gets me to, to think that if I make a, a scenario assessment on the S&P 500, and, again, I want to make this um, thinking exercise with you, Earnings and valuations almost never bottom at the same time. It's very easy to understand why. I mean, if earnings are collapsing, then probably the central bank will be looking at easing policy very soon, right? Because it means higher unemployment, etc. And Fed pivots are at least even mechanically positive for valuations in the first place. The muscle memory is the Federal Reserve cut rates. I can expand valuations as I'm gonna be discounting the future cash flows at a lower discounting rate. That's how people tend to behave, right? Which has a boost on PEs, even if earnings are still dropping. But even if we make this assumption, Andres, and we're looking at earnings in the maybe $200 area by Q3 next year, when the Fed is like, oh my God, inflation has slowed down, earnings are coming down negative on a year-on-year basis, the labor market has clearly softened. I should consider, Validating these forwards in in bond land, right? Maybe maybe telling them I'm going to be cutting rates, etc. But even if you do that and you say PEs at 17, so that's you know an earnings yield of six percent with real rates in the zero percent area, half a percent area. That's an equity risk premium of five and a half percent, just an average equity risk premium with earnings at 200. That makes the S and P 3,500. That's where I think the path of least resistance is gonna guide us. And again, it's gonna be push and pull. And again, when the Fed eases or thinks about easing, or when uh, China's reopening and everybody's excited, you might wanna see the S&P at forty one, forty two hundred. So it's all about, I think, maneuvering around these strategic push and pulls next year. But to me, the path of least resistance is not um higher equities from here with a good risk reward but rather lower equities with a good risk reward from the 4,000 area.
1: Yeah, so here's my take on how it will play out in 2023, and you're welcome to ridicule me in nine months when this is all wrong. Um, If you look at liquidity as a driver of equities, I actually think that we will enter next year, or rather this year, we should remember that this is the 1st of January. We are recording just before New Year's. That's why I make this mistake all the time. But the point is that January and February, they look relatively positive Mm -hmm. on liquidity. Uh, The reason is that we have the debt ceiling looming in the US, which means that the US Treasury will have to empty the Treasury General account ahead of the crossover date. exact date where the U.S. can no longer pay bills without lifting the debt ceiling. And on my calculations, uh, it will actually increase dollar liquidity to the magnitude of roughly 6.3 trillion, um, which is an increase of a little more than 300 billion in a matter of a couple of months. Uh, To me, that is probably enough to lift S&P 500 to 4,000, maybe just above 4,000, at least if you pair it with the Chinese reopening story as well. But then if you look at the liquidity outlook post the actual agreement to lift the debt ceiling, debt ceiling, then we actually look into a double whammy from a liquidity perspective as the US Treasury will rebuild its cash, bu- cash buffer, withdrawing liquidity from the rest of us in the process of doing so, while the Fed will likely do QT still, And um, that is a double whammy because that's a a liquidity withdrawal from both fronts. Uh, And that is, on my calculations, enough to bring liquidity to the area of 5.25 trillion-ish, which means S&P at 3,300 thereabouts. So we will get a new low next year if my liquidity projections are right.
0: Again, push and pull, Andreas. I mean, the overarching theme is the decade basically of buying some bonds and buying the Nasdaq and going to sleep and having a sharp ratio of two, like you were running a hedge fund, um, and getting 10, 15% returns a year without doing nothing is probably over, I would say, and a more macro aware assessment of your portfolio and risk management are important to make sure that your purchasing power is protected. That's how I would, I would actually phrase it, Andreas. And, um, I mean, again, um, you might have a short-term horizon and want to chase the S&P from 3,800 to 4,100. Totally doable, totally um, okay within a trading plan and within risk management practices. But if you're a longer-term investor, there is still the forest, as you discussed, which is a central bank that doesn't really like you pushing the S&P to 4,200 or above and um, negative uh, macro headwinds, which I don't think are fully discounted yet, including...
1: Uh, bank reserves coming down very aggressively. I think we agree on that. The way to translate this into positioning in equities, um, let me just mention that before we move on, is that I like to have a bit of net long equity exposure, but in a spread setup with three sectors that I like versus three sectors that I dislike. So I think growth will come down. I think inflation will come down in the US. I'm talking the US now. Uh, and the way to play that, I've backtested this through various cycles, is to have a basket of long utilities, healthcare, and staples versus short energy, discretionary and financials. So
0: it's uh, basically short cyclicals and long boring stuff. Effectively, yes. that's what it is. And it's been working pretty well over the last two months, and maybe a bit more, which is when the market started focusing on the fact that the economy is really slowing down. And actually, that not only real growth, but also inflation on a momentum basis is slowing down. So you get a nominal growth slowdown, which favors boring sectors rather than cyclical sectors. Now, Andreas, I think to be the first of this of January, if people are listening to this, I mean they probably are either still drunk or they're trying to think about how do i allocate my portfolio next year we shouldn't bore them too much what do you say no. it's it's 38 minutes in we talked about a lot of technical stuff yes
1: but i want to conclude with one thing and uh, it's what i call the six quickies <laughs> and um uh, and we're not doing, going to do a quickie on air here just uh, <laughs> not to scare you but uh, what i would like to do here is to ask You, Alfonso, and then I will answer afterwards whether a particular asset trades higher or lower compared to spot levels 1st of January 2023 by New Year's 2023. And then afterwards, we could quickly discuss why. So let's start with the elephant in the room, S&P 500, higher or lower by New Year's Eve 2023. Lower. Lower. I agree, lower. TLT. The long bond in the US, higher or lower? I have to say higher. I also agree on that one. (laughs) What about the gold price? Higher. I say lower.
0: The dollar index? Oh, this is really tricky. Um, I'm going to say higher and I'm
1: going to explain why. I think it will trade higher before lower. That's a true strategist answer.
0: Oh my god, man. (laughs) I mean I hate you. Lower, lower.
1: (laughs) I think lower by the end of the year. Then we have the price of Bitcoin elf. Um
0: end of twenty twenty three. I'm gonna surprise people again and I'm gonna be saying, nah. It's tough. Let me think about this. This is tricky. Uh, I'm going to be saying lower, but I'm not very convinced about it.
1: I'll go for higher. Mm. And then the final quickie. What about the price of the Tesla stock?
0: Depends. Higher or lower? It depends. <laughs> as, as, as Musk finally appointed somebody to run Twitter because he's not able to or not? Uh, I don't know, but I have to say, um, well, actually, both on Bitcoin and Tesla, The answer is it's really 50-50. I'm going to say lower again, but it's not easy.
1: My take is higher, so let's see. (laughs) And I guess we will sum it up in a year from now. And I don't know whether we can make this deal, Alfonso. If I have more rights out of these six quickies than you, you will go on air eating pineapple pizza in a year from now.
0: And I'm sorry, but there is no (laughs) bet in the world that can make me eat pineapple on pizza. I mean, especially calling asset prices higher or lower binary a year from now. I hate that. Pineapple on pizza as a price for that? No, no, no. I can't do that, Andreas. I'm sorry. Pick another bet next time and I can put the pineapple on pizza maybe on it, but it must be something really, really crucial.
1: Okay. I can't make that bet. Then then you need to allow me to drink cappuccinos after 12 a.m. <laughs>
0: Ooh, you're <laughs> stabbing me in the heart, but that's more doable because you are going to be committing the fraud and the crime towards Italian traditions, not me. So yes, okay, I allow you to, to do whatever you do in Denmark, I mean, jeez. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, so before we leave the audience and wish them a happy new year, let's... Sum it all up in the best trade for 2023 and maybe the worst trade for 23 from a risk-reward perspective right now. What's your take? One trade each.
0: One trade you must own for the entire year. You can't touch it. You own it. You buy it and you own it Um, long two-year treasuries. They're going to end the year probably pricing the Fed at Two and a half percent, two percent Fed funds by the end of twenty twenty four. Actually, Euro dollar um, December twenty four would be the best. But you know, you can buy two year, five year treasuries, buy and own. That's the trade I want to have on the book.
1: I will go for a flatter between twos and tens in the euro swap curve, aiming mm-hmm. at minus two hundred and fifty basis points. But, but massive but, inversion.
0: But you have to keep it even when the ECB yes. freaks out on yes. Italy or any other thing, yeah, okay? Yeah.
1: I I I hope that I'm still in the money by New Year's then.
0: <laughs> Andreas, before we leave the audience, um let's do some shameless plug and tell people that um it's the first of January when you hear this, yes. So um if you wanna find Portfolio locations, ETF, tactical trades for US investors, European investors, macro research, whatever other thing macro you would be interested in. From 2022, through 2023, it's behind the paywall on macrocompass.com. Check the tier you wanna subscribe to and come have a look.
1: Yes, and um, I have to almost echo that message. So um, you can also find a very extensive research coverage of in particular Europe, but also energy related questions on steno research.com it's behind a paywall, but very affordable, even for the retail crowd. Look at that.
0: What a a gentleman, Mr. Steno, he (laughs) makes it affordable. Okay (laughs) guys. Um, I think it's 44 minutes into the 1st of January. If you don't hate us by now, I don't know what we can do to make you hate us. Probably nothing. Oh, one last thing before I forget. Um, why don't you give us some feedback on the macro trading floor in 2022? And don't say stuff like Alf as an Italian accent. I can't do anything about that. You know, constructive stuff. No, I'm, I'm joking, but anything you'd like us to improve in terms of how the show is structured, guests, feedback of any sorts, you can reach out to me or Andreas on Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever. I think our messages are open on both platforms yes. and just let us know, like, you know, if you like us, you hate us, what shall we change, improve do best, do worse, et cetera.
1: Yeah. And, um. Also, please remember to share and review, review this podcast in, um, in the podcast app. It allows us to grow and um, we will make sure to continue to keep this product in front of the paywall um, for the benefit of uh, of all of you out there listening to it um, and Again, we are very happy to take feedback both on content, hairstyles, the lack of uh, facial hair, and uh, everything in between. <laughs> so um, with those words, I wish you a uh, very happy 2023. Thank you for all of the support. Last year, it was an immense pleasure being on air, in front of all of you great guys out there, guys and girls, I have to say. Um, I would assume that our audience is mostly male, but um, who knows? Uh, and um, I want to say thank you for all of the support because it's been overwhelming. And I think by now we are close to, is it hundred thousand listeners per week? It's getting there at least. It's uh, some, yeah. pretty
0: large. Happy New Year, guys. Talk again next week.